0: Welcome and thank you all for joining us here today um, for our State of Emerging CPG Food Brands webinar. Um, I'm your host, um, and MC, Mike. I'm the community manager here at uh, Manufacture.com. Before we get started, I really want to tell you a little bit more about Manufacture.com. Uh, Manufacture is an end-to-end inventory solution that helps brands with inventory financing and or sourcing and production needs. Our goal is to reduce your cogs while, in, while increasing your inventory amounts. So if you are a brand owner and looking for inventory financing, or want to explore our 700-plus manufacturing network, um, let me know if you'd be interested in learning more in our services. In this survey, just gonna just gonna launch a really quick survey, um, and if you happen to be interested in learning more information, just just let us know. Um, this will be the only only survey we do or anything like that um, during the whole um, uh, during this whole webinar that I'm really excited to get to. Um, uh, but thank you all again for being here. Um we we should have a lot of fun. Um, and if you're also heading to Expo East, we're also co-hosting a coffee event on the Thursday. So far, we have like over a hundred signups. So it should be a really fun kind of event to kind of help bring like like the uh, the CBG ecosystem together. um here. I'm gonna send a, send out um if, in case you're gonna be there. um would love to see you there and would love to meet you. Um, we really want to try to make this as um, as interactive as possible. So if there are any questions that you have that that, that you want to address, please do so in the Q&A. Um, and, we'll, and I'll do my best certainly to uh, uh, to get to them. Now on to um, our webinar, which I'm so excited about. So we have our panelists today. We have Cezna Mac, who if you've been to our other uh, uh, webinars, our one two times ago, our finance webinars, Cezna also did an incredible job um, uh, being, being a panelist there. Really excited to have her back. She's a principal at Amberstone. Amberstone is a VC and private equity firm that backs ambitious entrepreneurs. They're scaling brand-first consumer product companies and nationally distributed product category leaders. Some of our investments include Honey Mamas, Partake Brewing, Mush, and June and, and Juneshine. Um, we have uh, Christy Lewis, who is the founder of Quinn. Quinn started more than 10 years ago with a simple mission to, re- to reinvent classic snacks using real ingredients that you can trace back to the source. They create incredible snacks like pretzels and popcorn made from intentionally sourced real ingredients and a dedication to do things better every step along the way. We have Will Nitze, who is a founder and CEO of IQ Bar. IQ Bar creates plant-based protein bars for your brain and body. IQ Bars are keto, vegan, paleo-friendly, and contain Just one to two grams of sugar, three grams of net carbs. I'll be honest, I actually have a IQ Bar subscription that that comes every month. Really, really big fan of the product. Um, And we also finally have um, Erica Beth Levin, who is the founder and CEO of Global. Global produces chef-curated meals to give your baby the chance to experience the flavors of the world when they're most receptive to new flavors and textures. Six month plus, um, if your baby is six months or or um, or older, um, and it lead and uh, to help lead them to a lifetime of adventurous eating. So, panelists, all of you, thank you so much for joining us. How are you all doing today?
1: Thanks, Mike. Doing great. Good. Thank you for having us.
0: Awesome. So, really excited to kind of get like a little bit of like a market update. How are how you're all doing, especially in this kind of market climate? Um, my first question here, um, and again, if you do have questions, please feel free to use like the Q and A part um, of this, and I'll certainly try to get to it. Um, but my first question for you all is. Um, on the brand side of things, like has has inflation? um obviously, we've seen um inflation I- increase this year um uh, uh, quite a bit. um has how has um inflation impacted like the pricing of your product or um or 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 even the the product pricing for in, in your case has' it for your uh, portfolio companies? Um, have you seen like the pricing, for example, change of your, of your inputs so significantly that you had to increase your pricing in order to raise up margin? How have you kind of dealt with that or have not had to deal with that? Maybe, maybe Christy, we'll start with you on this one.
2: Oh boy. <laughs> There's like so much to say in that front. Um, yeah, I mean, so I'd like to say we're, we're a 13 year startup. And so, um, I think the the landscape has really changed since I started this in 2010. Um margin is king right it has been for for two years and so we have um we have had to take price increases over the last 12 months um in you know incremental st- stages so it's not all at once um we haven't seen a huge drop from consumer purchase which is a good thing um but it's always terrifying right because you just you have to take it to survive but at the same time you don't want to put yourself over a threshold where consumers can't afford your product anymore um so knock on wood, we haven't seen anything there yet. Um, we've seen a lot of labor increase um in our manufacturing plants. So that that's been hurting. Um ingredient costs, we've been, again, knock on wood, we've been pretty shielded. We we are mostly sourced domestically and we have really good farmer relations and we've locked in those prices. But um yeah, it's been it's been an interesting ride for sure, <laughs> the last two years, I would say.
0: Appreciate that. Uh, Christy, how about um, how about you, Will? What have you have you had to raise prices or or kind of deal with um rising costs of, of of um of your import your inputs or or on the labor side or in, in, in the manufacturing for IQ Bar?
3: We yeah. never did raise prices. We definitely. I mean, twenty twenty one was gnarly for sure. Uh, probably the <laughs> toughest year of my life to be honest with you. But <clears throat> I mean, it was just it was so. There was the increases but also coupled with like you literally couldn't get stuff stuff that you would never think you could not get like corrugate for example but um so those were like the most challenging times were literally not being able to get stuff let alone the price increases but on the price increase side um we did a bunch of things to make sure we didn't raise prices so we we had a turnkey model before our, our copac was buying everything we took our entire supply chain in-house which is just like a very big impactful move. Um, So we buy everything and we buy multiple production runs worth of everything. Um, And so we watch every single input and commodity like incredibly closely and bid out everything uh, as judiciously as we can. So we ended up changing a, a number of suppliers. We ended up um going back to the, the negotiating table with the number of suppliers, we um jacked up our volume, which which helped a lot. Um so we did like ten different things at the net net. We actually reduced our cogs. It was very painful to do that and required an insane amount of work and retooling how we run our supply chain. But by the way, in tandem we did the same thing on the fulfillment side. So we we were using we had a three PL model and we did exact same thing on fulfillment took that all of that in-house too uh fulfillment was getting kind of insanely expensive too so no uh we didn't but we had to basically re-engineer our business to 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 do that
0: wow that's um that's unbelievable um uh, just just going from you know using commands and using um and you and you know doing 3pls and then having to actually um, go in and, and you producing your own product. I mean, then it's like, so we it's, don't
3: produce our own product. We oh, just you don't. Okay.
0: The, took the supply chain side. Um,
3: and then, you know, committed to producing more units per SKU with, with our co-packer to, to make sure okay. labor increases didn't kill us. And there's just a series of things we do. That's basically the only thing we don't do is the literal
0: manufacturing of it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, and, and Erica, how about you?
1: So as a new company, you know, no one actually has seen the difference in any pricing. Um, so we were able, like, the, the good news is that we were able to, um, you know, do all of this kind of behind the scenes. But honestly, it wouldn't have changed our pricing anyway. We use our coman, man um, we manufacture out of Rhode Island, and they have ordering power and kind of economies of sta- of scale so um, we were able to take advantage of um, kind of the suppliers that they're already using all local they've built up great relationships Christy just like you said over the years. Um, so we we weren't as impacted um, as I was expecting, um, and in fact, it's it's strange. Um, during COVID, the jars that we're using for the food um, were extremely difficult to, to find, um, and so we were using a very expensive kind of square jar, and that price has actually gone down now. We've switched the shape of the jar, but we were actually able to get it for a little less expensive, so some things have actually gone down um, over the last couple of years in terms of the glass uh, that we use, uh, more of the supply side, and then the ingredients for really have maintained mostly um so it hasn't impacted us as much as one might expect
0: got it so i mean it seems from this um so far at least that um it obviously with like the supply chain crunch that kind of happened over the last two years the fact that now that's come that's kind of um, we, we've kind of come out of that, um, regards to maybe shipping uh, shipping costs of sh- disabled, and um, and different kind of ingredients now um, on the commodity side that maybe has as disabled as well. Um, so it that hasn't maybe had as drastic of an impact it seems as what it did like the past couple of years when it comes to price increases. I don't know, says that well, uh, if, if if you have any thoughts around this too and in relation to your uh, portfolio companies.
4: Yeah, I would say that. Um, I think over the last three, four years or so, there's actually been two cycles where I've seen price impact um, a lot of our brands. So once was in 2020, kind of. Uh, well, I hear a lot of what uh, the pain that had happened back then that transitioned in 2021, where supply chain was jammed up, COVID had pulled out a lot of the labor force, and so actually, I think where I think a lot of our brand. And so, some of that, some of what Will had into in terms of so shortages on corrugate, shortages on aluminum cans, uh, I think that really affected a lot of the supply chain and thus had like cascading impacts on price needing to take price for some of our brands. And I think once again, actually in 2022, maybe with that resurgence of whether it's the next variation, but just sort of the long tail of supply chain impacts, I think where we felt it most is maybe less on the input side, but. Where I at least can remember seeing it is more on like the retailer side and the distributor side and them taking price and needing and thus for our brands to need to evaluate that decision and taking price and passing that on to the consumers. So um, I think that's probably where I've seen the impact of inflation in most for us. There Uh, have, as
3: Erica mentioned, though there have been a couple interesting cases like like almonds are at a ten-year low. Um, Yes,
4: walnuts too
3: yeah Pe is in a multi year love that there's a there was absolutely a wave where and and a lot of it was ocean freight related but um and by the way, that ocean freight hurts or uh, uh, massively impacts domestic ingredients too, because let's say you're an almond producer in California, you're shipping a ton of stuff to India, China, what have you bidirectionally, there was ocean freight challenges, so they had this huge supply glut um And then another dynamic, like on the protein side, a lot of protein suppliers were just massive, like bought massively. They built up an inventory glut. And then all of a sudden demand wasn't what they thought it would be because market dynamics got harder. And so a bunch of companies went out of business, had lower demand, and they thought they would whatever. And now these suppliers have way too much supply. So there was like a kind of an awkward moment where just the switch flipped and like, oh crap, we have... A zillion pounds of this stuff. And that was, of course, welcome for brands, I guess. But there's that happening too.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess on that side too. Like when I've talked to brands, you know, during like the supply chain crunch, I think um at least quite a few brands that I talked to are like, okay, we need to instead of maybe ordering enough inventory to last for maybe three months, we need to do it for last for, you know, a longer periods of time. Um, and so and so they stock up on you know a ton of inventory and now um, it seems like many of them are, are like sitting on uh, sitting on quite a bit of inventory um as and, and things have kind of come back down um that there's um no longer maybe the issues that we that that we had a couple of years ago um with that kind of supply chain global crunch. And so uh, all this to say, how are you thinking about from an from from an inventory cycle today when in terms of like maybe how much to how much to uh, how much to order on and and on the planning side um and did? You know what happened in the past two years that has that like impacted you how you think about um how much to replenish um in the future um maybe um maybe we'll we'll start you off with this one
3: yeah i mean we produce more
0: <laughs> and
3: okay. uh we also produce more often so we had a model basically where we were producing every couple months and we would produce x and then um that comes that's challenging also from a demand planning standpoint you can't clean up demand planning misses as easily if you're producing every three four months or whatever if you're producing every month you can clean stuff up pretty easily you just sort of twist dials as you to compensate for for misses um but also you know we have a 12-month shelf life product so we have the we do have a little bit of a grace Buffer to be able to produce more than we otherwise would, and so just produce a lot, store it in really cool, dry temperatures, um, and we have a nice like shelf life on that. So, I mean, the worst thing that could ever happen is you go out of stock, right? Um, and so that like that's like an internal rule, like never ever ever go out of stock anywhere. Um, and so, and we know how painful it is because it's happened a number of times. Um, there's sort of a death spiral that occurs, especially on platforms like Amazon um, that are just hard to dig out of. So like that's the cardinal sin we've set for ourselves. So we yeah, we overproduce. We we got burned a couple of times on in- on ingredients like we have something like 42 inputs. All it takes is one of them not being there. And the whole machine doesn't work, um, especially for things that are shared across SKUs. So. We just buy more of every single input um, and a lot more. And so we have millions of dollars of of ingredients just sitting on our balance sheet. And that sucks in many ways, right? Because you're not, you know, that's not cash. You're not earning interest on that, blah, blah, blah. But the flip side is um, like the most painful thing that could happen is going out of stock. So it's kind of just more and more
0: often for us. That's, that's, um, that's helpful. That's helpful. Um, how about you, you, Chrissy, how do you think about like inventory planning from your perspective? Obviously you've been in business for 13 years for, for a long time, but did, did what's happened in the past two years change anything regarding how how your team thinks about inventory planning and, and how much product to produce?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's tricky. So our, our shelf life's anywhere between eight and 10 months. Um, and we co use a command. So so there's, you know, there's lead times and all that jazz. So we run, we run about every six weeks. Um, we like to keep like about six to eight weeks of inventory on hand. Um, there were points where we were getting down to, you know, four weeks of inventory, like pre, you know, COVID. Um, now, you know, we're, we're leaning more towards like eight weeks. Um, I think we're still in that growth phase with some of our products. So we want to make sure that we can deliver on time. We don't have any out of stocks at like Walmart, for example, or Whole Foods. Um, but we definitely, we've, we definitely been out of stock. It's not pretty. Uh, we manage through it. I mean, shit happens. So you know it's going to happen at some point. Um, but uh, I think just it's it's really more about like making sure that our suppliers have the ingredients. That's all I kind of care about. As long as they have the ingredients for us, then we know that we're somewhat protected. Uh, it's getting ahead of that planning, like being proactive versus reactive. But um, again, it's it's working pretty pretty well so far. Ask me tomorrow; <laughs> I might have a <laughs> story for you.
0: <laughs> no, that's well. I mean, you've obviously been in business for thirteen years, so it must be working. You know, pretty uh, uh, pretty well.
2: Yeah. Nothing phases <laughs> me now, so. <laughs>
0: How about you, Erica? I know that you're uh, you're a young company, but but how do you think about in terms of how much inventory to, uh, uh, to order, produce, and and what have you?
1: I mean, we literally just sent out our first shipment two weeks ago. So,
0: Congrats. That's <laughs> yeah, awesome.
1: thank you. Um, we're we're selling on both the consumer side directly, and we'll be launching on Amazon and then also um, through retail. So, I think honestly, some of these numbers have to start coming back. We'll be in quite a few retailers um, coming up, but. Um, Christy, like you were mentioning, shelf life. You know, we're a shelf stable product. Um, we don't actually use any preservatives to get it that way, but we are a shelf stable product um, for for two years. So even if we kind of do a bigger run, it's it's okay for the most part. Um, if we don't sell out within two years, I'd be very <laughs> upset. Um, but honestly, you know, we really have to see some of these numbers coming in. Initially, we just did a small run um, based on pre-orders on the site, purchase orders that we had from grocers. And we also ran a successful Kickstarter campaign, so I knew exactly how many we needed for all of that. I took into account some sampling I wanted to be able to do and get some of these samples out to buyers, um, you know, and then some VIP influencer type marketing that we wanted to do to to build buzz. So that's how we determined the first one. Um, The second one, we are we're actually doing next week um, and we're doing, it's four times bigger than the first one. Um, and that's just kind of based on some of the new purchase orders we've got from retailers and the ability to have some on hand, you know, as the D to C orders come in. Um, but I will report back if you'll have me again, uh, <laughs> once we start seeing some uh, movement and uh, some numbers.
0: I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing. That's awesome. Um, how about you says with your portfolio companies, has that kind of changed in terms of how much inventory to, um, uh, to order and replenish, um, or or overall, how do you think about this question?
4: Yeah, I think uh, something that we kind of think through a lot, especially as our brands are both retail focused and th- we have brands on ecom as well. Watching, understanding what the seasonality is, and making sure that's built in. I can tell you that all all brands have their own personal way of demand planning. There are lots of great partners to assist, but it's so real time. And especially at this stage, there's like not a perfect way because you have to move way too quickly to be able to predict anything so regularly. Um, And, you know, even for an an older startup, I'm sure that there are always kinks and um, the market changes. But um, yeah, if people have more tools and resources that they've loved, I've come across a number of partners, but it's still so custom to each team and so i think i really love um what christy said about i mean you have to do this across so many functions but being as proactive as you can rather than reactive is just like the always the goal and obviously there's always something that's going to happen so you need to be reactive but this is this is one of the areas where you know same similar things i've seen weeks on hand fluctuate a lot as our as our teams whether they're managing cash whether they're managing like disruptions in their supply chain, et cetera. And so, um, but it is something that we work closely with our teams on as well.
0: Cool. Thanks for, thanks for it. And yes, I mean, certainly it all is kind of a case-by-case basis depending on where you are. I really like what you said, Christy, about making sure that we never run out of our inputs. Um, you can kind of live, you, you, that's the um, one thing that to make sure that you always have your inputs so, so, so the new always can produce if you need to, um, or when you need to produce. Um, how, how also are you all thinking um, about, Kind of today's market as you know there's a lot of chatter and a lot of kind of um uh, things that are said about how um um brands should focus about profitability and capital efficiency in today's market um but what do those terms actually mean to those businesses Does, does um uh um is are you are you trying to get your business profitable are you are is it is that um not the case or kind of how are you thinking about um um, these kind of two things, profitability and capital efficiency, and what do they kind of mean to you um, uh, today? Uh, since we saw, you know, kind of this, um, it very much kind of changed in terms of what the narrative was a couple of years ago with kind of uh, just grow, grow, grow. Um, but how are you thinking about today in, in in terms of the overall growth and state of your business? Maybe, um, maybe Erica, will start with you on this one. I know you're, you're, you're a young company, but it'd be great to hear your insight.
1: But we do have, you know, we have thought this through, right? As we as we enter retail specifically, as we do see this as growing more as a retail brand than D 2 C, although we're giving it all a try, um, is to 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 really focus on the velocities that we have at certain stores. So instead of, you know, going just kind of everywhere um, you know we've had offers to go into a couple hundred stores uh, for this particular chain and I said I wasn't really ready um, yet because I don't um, I don't want to make my mistakes at that level I kind of want to make them on a smaller level so for instance where um, we're launching at Central Market in Texas like 10 of their stores uh, I think it's next week or the following they have this uh, the, um jars now but I want to see you know what are how we're flying off the shelves I say flying <laughs> I hope we fly off the shelves um you know the velocities off the shelf how often are they reordering put some resources towards driving people to that store so we could you know really go deep at that store and tell a really nice story and then when we see kind of what levers are working in terms of marketing we copy and paste that um, in other stores um other regions and in bigger you know in a bigger capacity um so it to us it's it's really about kind of going deeper with With our current partners instead of going wider. Um, And listen, I have a lot of people that that have advised me along the way. You know, a lot of CPG founders that have done this and have said, you know, try this, go this way, you know, really kind of learn your current retailers before expanding um, and just general CPG advisors. So that seems to be the strategy um, that we feel is best for us. Um, and and we'll kind of expand once we have a, a footprint in a particular store or a particular region. Um, so that's that's what we're what we're looking to do. And in terms of margins, we I've been thinking about that since day one. This is my third startup, so I kind of even though I've never done CPG before, I do understand um, the importance of good margins. Not recognizing how hard they are to hit in this industry, but we uh, we're looking good. Like I said, we have these um, economies of scale with our co-man um, that we're able to take advantage of, um, and really focusing on making sure that number, um, stays where we want it to be, um, so that we can continue to grow in a, in a healthy way.
0: Awesome. That's, um, um, I, I appreciate sharing how you actually turned down like a couple opportunities on, on the retail side, just to really kind of focus on, um, on, on, on your current velocities and maybe getting those up or, or, and also building kind of your current relation, relationship with your, with your retailers and kind of merchandising and kind of uh, making sure your, your impact is felt with your. With the retailers yeah. that you're going to be currently head uh, heading into instead of expanding, um, Christy, how how do you kind of think about this question? I mean, I know that you've you've been in business for you know a while, um, and so how do you think about overall like the 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 growth and expansion opportunities with um, with Quinn?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think those who have been in market for ten years plus I think had like a really hard um, realization right before COVID. I would say the market started to shift um, and we had been told, you know, by investors, grow, 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 except sometimes you don't have the right product in the market to grow, 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 right? Our product was our peanut butter nuggets, not the microwave popcorn that we launched, right? So I think, I mean, we made like every mistake in the book, essentially the first five years. Um, But the good thing about that is that I had always wanted to run a profitable business. It was just like, there was different mindset around the table. And of course, you know, obviously that everyone wants you to, to get to profitability, except this CPG landscape, there was more of a mindset of like grow and then that will come. It doesn't come, right? We now know this. Um, so for us, we are definitely sacrificing um, growth for profitability. Um, it's really important for us to build like a solid foundation and base and the growth will come um we know that but i i love that you know you said no erica um saying no a thousand times more than saying yes like will, will take you so far in this landscape because there's so many opportunities where you're like oh that would be so incredible but the reality is it costs so much money the bandwidth the inventory build. sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and you don't want to learn that lesson now um because no one really wants to raise money in this landscape right so I think that's the, the, the challenge um, that we have seen the last like, you know, 12 plus months, but we're definitely, I think it's it's also just taking a look at um, your operating team. Like we've had to go through our team and say, okay, well this person is the right fit, right seat for the long-term vision of the company. And this person unfortunately is not. And you have to make those hard decisions, right? Um, but as, as we walk through this, we have done some adjustments in our in our executive team the last couple of weeks. And um we feel really, really good about them. and we're all focused on on the ball, which is, you know, getting getting our margin and getting to a really strong, profitable um build so we can growth grow in grow the outward years. That's how we look at it right now.
0: Awesome. Um, really appreciate that, christy. Um and that and that kind of makes sense in terms of um if you want to focus on probability it's also what what that means is also maybe turning down certain opportunities too and and really focusing on the ones you currently have and making sure that that those are really really great robust channels for you um, yeah but- also
2: manufacturers too i mean that's it since this is a manufacturing podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> i'd say mm-hmm. like yeah, that's a the a big piece to this as well like make sure that you have the right manufacturer um because the right co-man can make or break you um and so that's something that I would encourage, you know, whoever's listening out there to really evaluate your manufacturers. Um, because they they really can break you. So I I have learned from experience. <laughs> so
0: thanks for your-
3: yeah, they can make you, but they can definitely break you. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. you have to make yourself.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: How do you think about this, Will, from from your perspective um and, and IQ bar?
3: Yeah, I mean, you just have to be profitable. There's, there's no, like, two ways about it. And I wouldn't say like majorly net, like, from all the people I've talked to, everything I've learned internally, it's like, I guess I, I look at it from, we one day want to sell the company, so okay, an acquirer is gonna want to buy today in 2023 a profitable business doesn't necessarily mean it had a huge net net profit in the last 12 months or or what have you, but like if they plug you into their system, there is some synergies across overhead, let's say, um, some synergies on materials. We all know these synergies are not as big as we once thought they were, but they're not non-existent. Um, In the event that that happens and those synergies are realized, that entity has to be profitable. In, in most cases today in 2023. So I, for us we've realized there's just for us we we've realized that we do get more net profitable as we grow, but not necessarily in ways you may have thought. it's we do we are renegotiating materials contracts. we are doing all those things that are kind of the traditional like economies of scale that that would yield a better net margin. but I would actually say those are the smaller, Determinants of, of us being more profitable as we grow. A really big one is overhead, just in CPG. Like we have a insane we we have an insanely ambitious revenue per head target of like five million dollars a head that if we can get that, like we're just gonna be profitable. Um because you know, there's not that much you can do to reduce the price of almonds there just isn't and same with labor and like you can do a lot and then you hit a ceiling and it's not budging much more like where else are you going to pull costs out either grow your your top line and don't grow your overhead or reduce your overhead and keep your top line the same or whatever but in some way that ratio is is a path to to profitability for us it's keep overhead the same grow top line so how do you do that in our experience you do that by picking and focusing on highly scalable channels meaning channels you don't need to add meaningful overhead revenue can vastly outpace revenue growth can vastly outpace overhead growth um club would be an example of that right it doesn't take that much more work to send 20 trucks than it does to send 10 trucks you're just booking another couple of truckloads right so you don't need another person to do that. And it's just like, whoa, that revenue had that been applied to like dozens and dozens of 30 store chains. Like, yeah, I would have needed another person for that. No question. And I just don't over here. So certain like channel selection and and focus for us, we've realized is incredibly important. Another digital example would be Amazon, right? You can triple your Amazon business and hire no new people. So that's just helpful from a top line to overhead ratio. I, then there's like a, a whole host of other things, right? Average order value, which is both a brick and mortar and a digital concept, you know, average order value at Costco is higher than the average order value at Rite Aid. It just is. Um, so same with, same with digital on, on your website, you know, D2C or Amazon, um, there are just a number of things you can do to increase average order value as well as lifetime value. But like for us, it's rolling out new product lines So now we can bundle, you're just not. You can only eat so many bars in a day, but you can eat bars and then consume hydration products and consume coffee products. Cool. Like if we roll out B and C, like average order value goes up. You can roll out new product lines that where the incremental new product line has a higher gross margin than the sub than than the previous one. So your blended gross margin goes up as you expand your product offerings. It's another way to increase in their profitability. So. We're, like, looking at it, looking at all these things, trying to do all of them um, at the same time. Uh, And still, it is insanely hard to get there. But this is our first profitable year after five years in. So now it's just like, all right, how do we chart a path to something meaningful, 10% EBITDA, call it? And um, I think it's just, like, doubling and tripling down on all those, those things for us.
0: Yeah, I mean those are great points. Um in terms of, you know, thinking and focusing um um what you can actually control versus what or and and what cost you actually can't control. At at some point, like you're not going to be able to control like l- l- like the cost of your inputs. At some point you're not going to be able to clo- you uh, control your costs in terms of um there's always, you know, a small pound, uh, uh, there's always, you know, the, the minimum that you um have to achieve in terms of y- you can only go so much on the margin side, right? Um, and so what are kind of other ways that you can think about costs? Um, really like your, your example, when it comes to overhead and it comes to hiring also think about, okay, when we go into a new sales channel, what does it actually mean from, from an overhead perspective, um, that we would need to do, um, um, and so is it worthwhile to actually go into there or, or, or not go into that channel? Um, Cessna, how are you thinking about, uh, uh, about this from, from your perspective with with your portfolio companies. And has this market at all changed how you how you thought about um, how you and also Amberstone thinks about investing um, in terms of brands that you actually might find, find interesting?
4: I resonate so much with everything that's been shared so far. And for Amberstone, just a little more context, we typically lead C- series A and later stage investments. So by the time we might serve as an investor, brands have been in market they've had some time to identify product market fit um and so and enough data behind that as well. So I think, you know, we are, we have invested and we do invest in companies that aren't necessarily profitable at the time at which we invest. But I think for us, capital efficiency, understanding margin profile are two of our core pillars and working not only in evaluating brands and investments, but in partnering with them to kind of chart the path forward to accomplish their vision and hopefully a great outcome um so in terms of i mean i I just really resonate so much with what's just been shared but um you know with just to reflect a little on what christy was sharing about the market a couple of years ago i think i've thought about this a lot having been um in in the cpg space but I think for a while, especially with the rise of plant-based and a lot of amazing, incredible food tech companies, there was a lot of conflation on how those brands can grow. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if you're producing food that's physical product, oftentimes it's perishable at a certain point. There's inventory to be moved. It doesn't scale the same way a tech company does. And I think that, you know, that um, that acknowledgement of that took a long time and had, been really painful to a lot of founders teams that had kind of gotten in with those tailwinds building incredible companies but kind of getting caught up with these um, growth expectations that didn't necessarily make sense nor really supported the focus on making sure um, they that founders had that time to build really like strong and sustainable businesses because Ultimately, when you start something, you're going to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and you're still learning what sticks. And I think that's the value of potentially bringing on capital early on. But um, I think I've said this several times, maybe even on the last time I was featured here, but my parents are refugees from the Vietnam War. We very much grew up in a household where like cash is king and credit is a myth and like don't take anything from anyone (laughs) because you want to be able to control your own destiny. And I think I anchor to that a lot and why I appreciate kind of the stage that that we invest in is that there's been some time so we can have those real conversations based on like historic, um, um, like the historic trends of the companies. And so um, there's room to understand like, well, what are gross what are gross margins today? And we actually look at it also on a fully loaded basis as well. And I would say what I've seen over the last couple of years is a lot of institutional investors looking deeper, not only at gross margin, but at um, what I'll call fully loaded gross margin, which for us includes understanding shipping and fulfillment, especially as channels have diversified more for food and beverage companies. And then now even more so down to contribution margin that incorporates a lot of the variable um, costs that come with getting your product to your end consumer. And I actually think that this is a really healthy um and it's a lot deeper and it's a lot harder to see when you're at the earlier stages, but as you continue to grow, um, having that line of sight onto, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily profitable right off the bat, but what are the milestones? What are the benchmarks that you're like working towards in order to understand that path towards profitability? Because as Will said, if your end goal ultimately is to exit to strategics, strategics have also become a lot more conservative in how they've been approaching potential acquisitions I think you know it's it's been a bit of a flux as well but um they I think have learned to a large extent that they're not necessarily equipped to support a em- young emerging brands so I think they are increasingly looking for to understand can this brand stand alone and work independently as a business unit um and then whatever synergies we have on top of that that's the upside and and like will said like it's going to be much lower than anyone hopes but um ultimately for us for in terms of profitability i think like i think for founders the most powerful position you can be in and i would say like even in this fundraising environment is how like how close are you to profitability the closer you are the more in control i feel you or the more power you have to kind of control that destiny to navigate like do you want to put the pedal to the metal on investing in a certain channel or a new product launch or a certain opportunity Um, and those are a lot of the conversations that we are working with on our brand and as like a board agree on like is this the right investment to or like how close do we need to get to demonstrating profitability versus how meaningful is this initiative whether it's a new channel all of what i just shared um to invest in in order to determine like have we achieved have we understood the playbook for this channel, et cetera.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, those are um, excellent points, Cessna. I think um, you know, I, I I do think that just because of like kind of the rise of D2C and the D2C channel, a lot of um a lot of folks just thought that, um, oh, we're you now using this channel that we can sell to anyone in the world. Um, that these are now kind of tech companies because you're leveraging technology in order to sell um, uh, sell product but ultimately these are you know inventory based businesses that we're talking about and ultimately you're moving inventory um and you you have you know real marginal costs um unlike you know SaaS companies and kind of marketplaces um and um yeah just a number a, a number of great thoughts there uh, says that. and also thanks for sharing your story um there, there as well um speaking of you know kind of the fundraising climate and as well as just overall financing your business how are you all thinking about when to use kind of debt in order to finance and grow your business or, or versus when to use equity. Um, maybe, um, Erica, we can start with you, with you on this
1: one. Yeah, I'm in the throes of this. Well, not so much. I, I will go back. Sorry, let me <laughs> progress. Um, we raised angel money. Um, just when it was in the idea stage, right. And that helped us get through recipe development, um, finding a co-man branding, you know, starting to kind of get the word out. Um, and we're in a position now, um, that we have some revenue, right. Even though we just launched two weeks ago, we did do pre-orders and stuff. So at this stage of the game, we're kind of, um, having that exact conversation with ourselves. Um, To me, uh, again, like three startups, I've done um, angels at the beginning, a very, very small amount that I then kind of consider bootstrapping from there. And then I um, did a VC-backed company the second time. And so here I am sort of in between. Uh, But my personal goal, I understand that you should have a bigger uh, piece of a smaller pie. Yeah, so I'm sort of in between now, right? I raised a substantially uh, larger amount than I did with my first company, but not VC uh, yet. And so we're just trying to determine kind of what our revenues look like. I, at this stage, knowing kind of the traction that we have and the fact that we have been revenue positive even before we launched through you know, our pre-orders and Kickstarter and things of that nature, um, I, I want to wait um, on any sort of dilutive capital right now. Um, and I am personally looking at someone else, I can't remember who mentioned uh, maybe PO financing or inventory financing. I think someone had mentioned uh, that says that. Thank you. Um, so I'm actually looking at um, some options for that. There's um, there's a, t- a potential loan um, through another CPG founder who had a lot of success and now helps other founders out. Interest is high. <laughs> um, so I am actually, I, I can't exactly tell you what I'm doing right now because I'm not sure, but we are exploring kind of all these varied ways. Like uh, Christy mentioned, it's not an ideal time to be fundraising right now. And so I'm trying to push that off, um, you know, a little bit longer. Uh, but I do see this being a VC backed company at some point to grow the way we want to grow.
0: Cool. Cool. That's awesome. Really, really appreciate that. Um, how about, how about you, Christy, how are you thinking about, um, in terms of, um, how are you thinking about in terms of, um, uh, when to use equity and, and when to use debt?
2: Yeah. Well, um, Our company has pretty much been financed first, like Angel, the Angel route, obviously, the friends of friends. Um, And then we have um, some VCs involved. Um, We took in a significant amount of money uh, about two years ago. Um, We also use, we just took on some debt. Um, It's structured in a way where it's a convertible note slash or we can pay back the debt um which is obviously hard to do when you're not profitable. <laughs> so that's like the caveat there. Um I would say that um we are working with um and looking into some other, you know, uh, term based kind of loans, right? We have um we have some other things in the works, but I think you can kind of piece it together. There's there's a time and a place for everything also. Um right? I mean 13 years ago, we did it differently than we're doing it now. Um, I think about it differently, um, clearly. And then, you know, here on out, I'm thinking about it differently as well. I also think it's really important to make sure that as we we're speaking about, you know, equity and and debt is, you know, equity is tied. To, it's like a marriage, right? You have to really make sure that you have the right people around the seat because oftentimes they have board seats, right? Um, and sometimes they're a good fit and sometimes you outgrow them or they outgrow you. And so that changes and evolves. So I think that's really important to, to know as well. Um, so yeah, we're not sure what we're going to do in the future, but I think that it's going to be a combination of a couple of things.
0: Well, cool. no, that's, um, that's, that's a really great point, um, too, about equity. It's not just, um, you're not just only giving up like a percentage of your company, but you're also, um, it's also maybe another voice in your company as well um, mm-hmm. that has to be taken seriously. So um, it's definitely is, um, is has to be, you know, it's- so make sure you're aligned.
2: Yeah, yeah, that your your goals are aligned because, and and as a founder, your goals and your alignment will change, right? You might want something um, much more differently than now than when you started or vice versa. Like it just, it, you know, you evolve as a human being. So <laughs> you change. Um, they do too, so it's it's just important to recognize that and make sure they're they're structured in a way where you could potentially you know move on from them.
0: Totally, totally. Well, how do you think about this in terms of in terms of growing your your business with financing, but whether it's equity or debt?
3: Yeah, I mean, money is money, and all money has a cost, and that cost fluctuates, right? So being married to any one source of money, whether that be debt. You know, debt financing or PO financing, PO factoring, whatever is silly because some years it's great to use, use, raise debt, and some years it's terrible to raise debt. Some years it's you know, in 2021 it was a great time to raise equity because inflate you know valuations are so inflated. Like, well, now you should probably use raise equity if you can. Um, and so I, I think it just you have to look at it on an annual basis based on macro and micro dynamics and you say, okay, how much money do I need? And, and where, where should I aim to get that based on what's happening right now and where the business is at right now? Um, so we, I mean, we've used a combination, like we, we raised, if I could never raise from an institution, I, I wouldn't, I don't like, you know, I, I prefer dealing with people um, versus institutions, but so for the first, two rounds, we raise are all angels. Um, At some point, you run out of enough, enough people who can write $200,000 checks, there just aren't that many of those people. Uh, So you got to go to people with bigger pocketbooks. But um, I mean, for for us also just like as a general philosophy, which I know a lot of people have the opposite philosophy, our philosophy is raise as little money as possible, more often, so we raise more times and less money each time, which is inherently a risky strategy because if something goes wrong, you're screwed. Uh, but if every, but if things go right, you're not. And it's like the most dilution optimized way to do it. And so we just bet on ourselves and raise more often, which also sucks because you're raising money more often, right? You, you'd rather be running your business. But um but we raise like almost every year, um and then I, I the last thing I would just say is like, have the end outcome firmly emblazoned in your, your mind. so do you want a small slice of a big pie? do you want I actually don't want a small slice of a big pie. I would like a, a large slice of a medium sized pie that's that's what I want um because i don't I just don't want to run a massive company. It's not fun to me. I also don't want to run a small company. I want, I want to run a medium-sized company and exit that company. But that's just me, right? So everyone has different things they're working backwards from. So for me, it was always like, okay, own over 50% of a company, grow it to X in revenue, sell it for Y dollars. And in order to get all those outcomes, I'm going to have to like do this, 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 and this and like chart it out and rough valuations and revenues tied to those valuations and and then, of course, doing it is uh, a whole other can of worms. But um,
0: that's how I think of it. Appreciate that. Uh, appreciate that perspective. Um, Cessna, how do you think about this, especially from, you know, on, on the equity side in terms of when to use equity versus when to use debt?
4: Yeah, Um. actually, as a part of our investment, we have... For a number of our investments, have helped to bring on debt providers as well to kind of ration down the need for equity, understanding like the impact of dilution and everything. And so, um, there's, I I think, as well said, like money is money, and all money costs, and it's sort of balancing that. It fluctuates with the market. Like right now, debt and interest rates are pretty high. And so, while in the past, like generally, debt is cheaper than equity, it is it is more capital intensive in terms of like when you turn on interest rates can you really support that cash flow do you have the right team to help you manage it um so in as as a as a whole i actually uh i i think i can be supportive of both but again as it relates to equity obviously i shared some of my philosophy but for me equity is used when you're i think equity is most powerfully used when you know that it can go towards growth. You've established some level of base where you know product market fit. This is how, this is like, without anybody coming in, without anybody like messing with my future, this is what my business is and what it will be. And then you might have some decisions to make. Maybe you're seeing increasing increases in velocity. That's obviously gonna drive the working capital you need to supply these POs. Okay, well, is it worth it to me right now to, consider bringing on equity, which means a marriage, a partner, um, the, who is going to be involved with it, you know, and hopefully the one that you select, um, and is this the right time to take this bet or are there other proof points I need to take now? So things that I might consider, if you have your level of base business, this might be going into a new retailer. We just signed on X number of doors with this retailer. We want, you know, we have been in natural we would like to test what we would be in a conventional channel, or you know, maybe our established retail business is this. We want to see what it looks like to turn on Amazon, but we at least know like what is our baseline. And so I think that's like a really powerful time to consider bringing on equity. Um, and then from the investor standpoint as well, I mean, ultimately that reflects a lot of how we're evaluating businesses too, because what we want to understand is where would the business be organically without any support and then what could we do because ultimately for any dollar you bring on debt or equity and this kind of relates earlier to the capital efficiency question is where are you going to put that money towards and what are you expecting as a return from that um and and like how aligned is that with the vision that you want to grow um so with and and then with debt debt um i think is more powerfully used when you are Like, you know what your base business is. there are just some working capital needs because like you are getting POs, but it's your existing business already. And so you just need additional support. I think the biggest challenge here, as I've seen for a lot of our brands is it's really hard to secure debt financing as an emerging brand. Um, And I would say that a lot of debt providers like this equity backstop. And so that's why a lot of times we're really supportive and actually can partner with a lot of great partners to help. Kind of open up even larger line or more secure or line with better terms. Um I'm sure there's a lot more I could say about this, but I also agree with Christine, like it's a marriage. I think that equity partners, I it for us, you know, we see every relationship as long term. Founders that we backed in the past on a pre-fund basis are actually some of the investors in our fund today. So I think this is like a is a forever thing because we're all human and I agree as well, like as I think it's incredibly important to be set on your vision your goal like why did you even start out why does this mean anything to you because it's going to take a lot from you every day (laughs) um and yeah i think just be knowing that like whatever your goals are planting that um putting that stake in the ground because it will change but at least you have some understanding of like well why is it changing what are the core elements that like you know maybe we've outgrown um and you know, I think we actually spend a lot of time with our founders prior to investing. A lot of the founders that we've invested in, we've known for months, if not a year or two before we invest and have been able to be partners throughout the journey, hopefully as helpful as we can in both directions, honestly, um, because it, you know, people are what makes life. And so hopefully you want to bring the best people to your
1: table as well. And Mike, yeah. can I add one thing as well? Go for it. Go I for was it. just gonna say something about, um, V VCs, let me know if I'm cutting out. Um, with the VC marriage, right? I I thought about this with um my my former business partner and VCs. It is like a marriage, right? You're legally bound, financially bound, but just remember, and I don't know a better way to say this, a marriage is based on love. Okay, business is not. So just so really be careful during that dating period and make sure that this this is a good a good marriage and a good, a good fit. I would, I just listened to how I built this with the Mary's gone crackers woman, the founder of Mary's gone crackers. And I thought it was a really interesting story. And a lot of it um focused on her relationship with one uh, particular VC, which wasn't mentioned um who it was, but anyway, it was an interesting um story. And I, I recommend listening to it too, if you're going in that direction.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate these additions. That's um that's great. And I also think too, just in terms of like tough times, like this is kind of like a, uh, a, a tough time for founders, both on the equity side and the debt side, because you know on the equity side um, uh, uh, valuations kind of aren't what they used to be, or 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 this is much more like an investor market um, than a, than a founder market, and then um, and then on the founder side, and also like a lot of like like kind of like the tech money has like gone away, which is probably a great thing to be honest with you, but. Um, but, um, and then, on the debt side, like, debt is really expensive today, too. So, um, it's also like the the debt and equity question, like this is also just a, kind of a a tough time on on both sides in terms of um equity and debt. Um but um this has been this has been so much fun. Um Christy, Erica, will, and Cessna, thank you all so much for your time. I really appreciate it, yeah,
2: thanks, thanks, Mike. Um, just quickly the the q and a questions coming in. If anyone wants to reach out on. Um, hiring. I've gone through the ringer with all of this. So um, you can find me on LinkedIn or however you want to find me. Um, but I'm happy to help anyone sitting on here who needs hiring help.
0: Great. Great. Awesome. Appreciate that. Um, well, well, thank you all. Thank you all so much for attending. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Manufactured, for producing this webinar. Um, this is kind of part of our, our webinar series where we're going through different kind of uh, categories and kind of um understand what the what what the current landscape uh landscape is in this category so last month we did beauty and personal care this month we did food next month we're going to be doing apparel which i'll i'll keep you all posted when that is and then in december we're going to do one on beverage so um thank you all again so much for um uh for attending this has been a lot of fun